Chapter 5 Percy Franklin, the new Cardinal Protector of England, came slowly along the passage leading from the Pope's apartments, with Hans Steinmann, Cardinal Protector of Germany, blowing at his side. They entered the lift, still in silence, and passed out two splendid, vivid figures, one erect and virile, the other bent, fat, and very German from spectacles to flat-buckled feet. At the door of Percy's suite, the Englishman paused, made a little gesture of reverence, and went in without a word. A secretary, young Mr. Brent, lately from England, stood up as his patron came in. Eminence, he said, the English papers are come. Percy put out a hand, took a paper, passed on into his inner room, and sat down. There it all was, gigantic headlines and four columns of print, broken by startling title phrases and capital letters, after the fashion set by America a hundred years ago. No better way even yet had been found of misinforming the unintelligent. He looked at the top. It was the English edition of The Era. Then he read the headlines. They ran as follows. The National Worship, Bewildering Splendor, Religious Enthusiasm, The Abbey and God, Catholic Fanatic, Ex-Priests as Functionaries. He ran his eyes down the page, reading the vivid little phrases, and drawing from the whole a kind of impressionist view of the scenes in the Abbey on the previous day, of which he had already been informed by the telegraph, and the discussion of which had been the purpose of his interview just now with the Holy Father. There was plainly no additional news, and he was laying the paper down when his eye caught a name. It is understood that Mr. Francis, the ceremoniarius, to whom the thanks of all are due for his reverent zeal and skill, will proceed shortly to the northern towns to lecture on the ritual. It is interesting to reflect that this gentleman only a few months ago was officiating at a Catholic altar. He was assisted in his labors by twenty-four confreres with the same experience behind them. Good God! said Percy aloud. Then he laid the paper down. But his thoughts had soon left this renegade behind, and once more he was running over in his mind the significance of the whole affair, and the advice that he had thought it his duty to give just now upstairs. Briefly, there was no use in disputing the fact that the inauguration of pantheistic worship had been as stupendous a success in England as in Germany. France, by the way, was still too busy with the cult of human individuals to develop larger ideas. But England was deeper, and somehow, in spite of prophecy, the affair had taken place without even a touch of bathos or grotesqueness. It had been said that England was too solid and too humorous. Yet there had been extraordinary scenes the day before. A great murmur of enthusiasm had rolled around the abbey from end to end as the gorgeous curtains ran back, and the huge masculine figure, majestic and overwhelming, colored with exquisite art, had stood out above the blaze of candles against the tall screen that shrouded the shrine. Markenheim had done his work well, and Mr. Brand's passionate discourse had well prepared the popular mind for the revelation. He had quoted in his peroration passage after passage from the Jewish prophets, telling of the city of peace whose walls now rose before their eyes. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. O thou so long afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and thy foundations with sapphires. I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. As the chink of censer chains had sounded in the stillness, with one consent the enormous crowd had fallen on its knees, and so remained as the smoke curled up from the hands of the rebel figure who held the thurible. Then the organ had begun to blow, and from the huge massed chorus and the transepts had rolled out the anthem, broken by one passionate cry from some mad Catholic, but it had been silenced in an instant. It was incredible, utterly incredible, Percy had told himself. Yet the incredible had happened, and England had found its worship once more, the necessary culmination of unimpeded subjectivity. 
from the provinces had come the like news. In cathedral after cathedral had been the same scenes. Markenheim's masterpiece, executed in four days after the passing of the bill, had been reproduced by the ordinary machinery, and 4,000 replicas had been dispatched to every important center. Telegraphic reports had streamed into the London papers that everywhere the new movement had been received with acclamation, and that human instincts had found adequate expression at last. If there had not been a god, used Percy reminiscently, it would have been necessary to invent one. He was astonished, too, at the skill with which the new cult had been framed. It moved round no disputable points. There was no possibility of divergent political tendencies to mar its success. No over-insistence on citizenship, labor, and the rest for those who were secretly individualistic and idle. Life was the one fount and center of it all, clad in the gorgeous robes of ancient worship. Of course the thought had been Felsenberg's, though a German name had been mentioned. It was positivism of a kind, Catholicism without Christianity, humanity worship without its inadequacy. It was not man that was worshipped, but the idea of man, deprived of his supernatural principle. Sacrifice, too, was recognized, the instinct of oblation without the demand made by transcendent holiness upon the blood-guiltiness of man. In fact, said Percy, it was exactly as clever as the devil, and as old as Cain. The advice he had given to the Holy Father just now was a counsel of despair, or of hope. He really did not know which. He had urged that a stringent decree should be issued, forbidding any acts of violence on the part of Catholics. The faithful were to be encouraged to be patient, to hold utterly aloof from the worship, to say nothing unless they were questioned, to suffer bonds gladly. He had suggested, in company with the German cardinal, that they too should return to their respective countries at the close of the year to encourage the waverers. But the answer had been that their vocation was to remain in Rome unless anything unforeseen happened. As for Felsenberg, there was little news. It was said that he was in the East, but further details were secret. Percy understood quite well why he had not been present at the worship as had been expected. First, it would have been difficult to decide between the two countries that had established it, and secondly, he was too brilliant a politician to risk the possible association of failure with his own person. Thirdly, there was something the matter with the East. This last point was difficult to understand. It had not yet become explicit, but it seemed as if the movement of last year had not yet run its course. It was undoubtedly difficult to explain the new president's constant absences from his adopted continent, unless there was something that demanded his presence elsewhere. But the extreme discretion of the East and the stringent precautions taken by the empire made it impossible to know any details. It was apparently connected with religion. There were rumors, portents, prophets, ecstatics there. Upon Percy himself had fallen a subtle change which he himself was recognizing. He no longer soared to confidence or sank to despair. He said his mass, read his enormous correspondence, meditated strictly, and, though he felt nothing, he knew everything. There was not a tinge of doubt upon his faith, but neither was there emotion in it. He was as one who labored in the depths of the earth, crushed even in imagination, yet conscious that somewhere birds sang and the sun shone and water ran. He understood his own state well enough, and perceived that he had come to a reality of faith that was new to him, for it was sheer faith sheer apprehension of the spiritual, without either the dangers or the joys of imaginative vision. He expressed it to himself by saying that there were three processes through which God led the soul. The first was that of external faith, which assents to all things presented by the accustomed authority, practices religion, and is neither interested nor doubtful. The second follows the quickening of the emotional and perceptive powers of the soul, and is set about with consolations, desires, mystical visions, and perils. It is in this plane that resolutions are taken and vocations found and shipwrecks experienced. And the third, mysterious and inexpressible, consists in the reenactment in the purely spiritual sphere of all that has preceded, as a play follows a rehearsal, in which God is grasped but not experienced, 
Grace is absorbed unconsciously and even distastefully, and little by little the inner spirit is conformed in the depths of its being, far within the spheres of emotion and intellectual perception, to the image and mind of Christ. So he lay back now, thinking, a long, stately, scarlet figure in his deep chair, staring out over holy Rome seen through the misty September haze. How long, he wondered, would there be peace? To his eyes even already the air was black with doom. He struck his handbell at last. Bring me Father Blackmore's last report, he said as his secretary appeared. Percy's intuitive faculties were keen by nature and had been vastly increased by cultivation. He had never forgotten Father Blackmore's shrewd remarks of a year ago, and one of his first acts as Cardinal Protector had been to appoint that priest on the list of English correspondents. Hitherto he had received some dozen letters, and not one of them had been without its grain of gold. Especially he had noticed that one warning ran through them all, namely that sooner or later there would be some overt act of provocation on the part of English Catholics. And it was the memory of this that had inspired his vehement entreaties to the Pope this morning. As in the Roman and African persecutions of the first three centuries, so now the greatest danger to the Catholic community lay not in the unjust measures of the government, but in the indiscreet zeal of the faithful themselves. The world desired nothing better than a handle to its blade. The scabbard was already cast away. When the young man had brought the four closely written sheets, dated from Westminster the previous evening, Percy turned at once to the last paragraph before the usual recommendations. Mr. Brand's late secretary, Mr. Phillips, whom your eminence commended to me, has been to see me two or three times. He is in a curious state. He has no faith, yet intellectually he sees no hope anywhere but in the Catholic Church. He has even begged for admission to the order of Christ crucified, which of course is impossible. But there is no doubt he is sincere. I have introduced him to many Catholics in the hope that they may help him. I should much wish your eminence to see him. Before leaving England, Percy had followed up the acquaintance he had made so strangely over Mrs. Brand's reconciliation to God, and, scarcely knowing why, he commended him to the priest. He had not been particularly impressed by Mr. Phillips. He had thought him a timid, undecided creature, yet he had been struck by the extremely unselfish action by which the man had forfeited his position. There must surely be a good deal behind. And now the impulse had come to send for him. Perhaps the spiritual atmosphere of Rome would precipitate faith. In any case, the conversation of Mr. Brand's late secretary might be instructive. He struck the bell again. Mr. Brent, he said, in your next letter to Father Blackmore, tell him that I wish to see the man whom he proposed to send, Mr. Phillips. Yes, Eminence. There is no hurry. He can send him at his leisure. Yes, Eminence. But he must not come till January. That will be time enough unless there is urgent reason. Yes, Eminence. The development of the Order of Christ Crucified had gone forward with almost miraculous success. The appeal issued by the Holy Father throughout Christendom had been as fire among stubble. It seemed as if the Christian world had reached exactly that point of tension at which a new organization of this nature was needed, and the response had startled even the most sanguine. Practically the whole of Rome, with its suburbs, three millions in all, had run to the enrolling stations in St. Peter's as starving men run to food, and desperate to the storming of a breach. For day after day the Pope himself had sat enthroned below the altar of the chair, a glorious, radiant figure, growing ever white and weary towards evening, imparting his blessing with a silent sign to each individual of the vast crowd that swarmed up between the barriers, fresh from fast and communion, to kneel before his new superior and kiss the pontifical ring. The requirements had been as stringent as circumstances allowed. Each postulant was obliged to go to confession to a specially authorized priest who examined sharply into motives and sincerity, and only one-third of the applicants had been accepted. This, the authorities pointed out to the scornful, was not an excessive proportion, for it was to be remembered that most of those who had presented themselves had already undergone a sifting fierce as fire. Of the three millions in Rome, two millions at least were exiles for their faith, 
preferring to live obscure and despised in the shadow of God rather than in the desolate glare of their own infidel countries. On the fifth evening of the enrollment of novices, an astonishing incident had taken place. The old king of Spain, Queen Victoria's second son, already on the edge of the grave, had just risen and tottered before his ruler. It seemed for an instant as if he would fall, when the Pope himself, by a sudden movement, had risen, caught him in his arms, and kissed him, and then, still standing, had spread his arms abroad and delivered a fervorino such as never been heard before in the history of the Basilica. Benedictus Dominus, he cried, with upraised face and shining eyes, blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. I, John, vicar of Christ, servant of servants and sinner among sinners, bid you be of good courage in the name of God. By him who hung on the cross, I promise eternal life to all who persevere in his order. He himself has said it. To him that overcometh, I will give a crown of life. Little children, fear not him that killeth the body. There is no more that he can do. God and his mother are amongst us. So his voice had poured on, telling the enormous awe-stricken crowd of the blood that already had been shed on the place where they stood, of the body of the apostle that lay scarcely fifty yards away, urging, encouraging, inspiring. They had vowed themselves to death, if that were God's will, and if not, the intention would be taken for the deed. They were under obedience now, their wills were no longer theirs but God's, under chastity, for their bodies were bought with a price, under poverty, and theirs was the kingdom of heaven. He had ended by a great silent benediction of the city and the world, and there were not wanting a half-dozen of the faithful who had seen, they thought, a white shape in the form of a bird that hung in the air while he spoke, white as a mist, translucent as water. The consequent scenes in the city and suburbs had been unparalleled, for thousands of families had with one consent dissolved human ties. Husbands had found their way to the huge houses on the Quirinal set apart for them, wives to the Aventine while the children, as confident as their parents, had swarmed over to the sisters of St. Vincent, who had received at the Pope's orders the gift of three streets to shelter them in. Everywhere the smoke of burning went up in the squares where household property, rendered useless by the vows of poverty, were consumed by their late owners. And daily long trains moved out from the station outside the walls, carrying jubilant loads of those who were dispatched by the Pope's delegates to be the salt of men, consumed in their function, and leaven plunged in the vast measures of the infidel world and that infidel world welcomed their coming with bitter laughter. From the rest of Christendom had poured in news of success. The same precautions had been observed as in Rome, for the directions issued were precise and searching, and day after day came in the long rolls of the new religious drawn up by the diocesan superiors. Within the last few days, too, other lists had arrived, more glorious than all. Not only did reports stream in that already the order was beginning its work, and that already broken communications were being re-established, that devoted missioners were in process of organizing themselves, and that hope was once more rising in the most desperate hearts. But better than all this was the tidings of victory in another sphere. In Paris, forty of the newborn order had been burned alive in one day in the Latin Quarter before the government intervened. From Spain, Holland, Russia had come in other names. In Dusseldorf, eighteen men and boys, surprised at their singing of prime in the Church of St. Lawrence, had been cast down one by one into the city sewer, each chanting as he vanished. Christi fili dei vivi, miserere nobis, and from the darkness had come up the same broken song till it was silenced with the stones. Meanwhile the German prisons were thronged with the first batches of recusants. The world shrugged its shoulders and declared that they had brought it on themselves, while yet it deprecated mob violence, and requested the attention of the authorities and the decisive repression of this new conspiracy of superstition. And within St. Peter's Church the workmen were busy at the long rows of new altars, affixing to the stone diptychs the brass-forged names of those who had already fulfilled their vows and gained their crowns. 
It was the first word of God's reply to the world's challenge. As Christmas drew on, it was announced that the Sovereign Pontiff would sing Mass on the last day of the year at the Papal Altar of St. Peter's on behalf of the Order, and preparations began to be made. It was to be a kind of public inauguration of the new enterprise. And to the astonishment of all, a special summons was issued to all members of the Sacred College throughout the world to be present unless hindered by sickness. It seemed as if the Pope were determined that the world should understand that war was declared, for although the command would not involve the absence of any cardinal from his province for more than five days, yet many inconveniences must surely result. However, it had been said, and it was to be done. It was a strange Christmas. Percy was ordered to attend the Pope at his second Mass, and himself said his three at midnight in his own private oratory. For the first time in his life he saw that of which he had heard so often, the wonderful old-world pontifical procession, lit by torches, going through the streets from the Lateran to St. Anastasia, where the Pope for the last few years had restored the ancient custom, discontinued for nearly a century and a half. The little basilica was reserved, of course, in every corner for the peculiarly privileged, but the streets outside along the whole route, from the cathedral to the church, and, indeed, the other two sides of the triangle as well, were one dense mass of silent heads and flaming torches. The Holy Father was attended at the altar by the usual sovereigns, and Percy, from his place, watched the heavenly drama of Christ's passion enacted through the veil of his nativity at the hands of his old angelic vicar. It was hard to perceive Calvary here. It was surely the air of Bethlehem, the celestial light, not the supernatural darkness, that beamed round the simple altar. It was the child called Wonderful that lay there beneath the old hands, rather than the stricken man of sorrows. Adeste Fideles sang the choir from the tribune. Come, let us adore, rather than weep. Let us exalt, be content, be ourselves like little children. As he for us became a child, let us become childlike for him. Let us put on the garments of infancy and the shoes of peace. For the Lord hath reigned. He is clothed with beauty. The Lord is clothed with strength and hath girded himself. He hath established the world which shall not be moved. His throne is prepared from of old. He is from everlasting. Rejoice greatly then, O daughter of Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh, the Holy One, the Savior of the world. It will be time then to suffer by and by when the prince of this world cometh upon the prince of heaven. So Percy mused, standing apart in his gorgeousness, striving to make himself little and simple. Surely nothing was too hard for God. Might not this mystic birth once more do what it had done before, bring into subjection, through the might of its weakness, every proud thing that exalts itself above all that is called God? It had drawn wise kings once across the desert, as well as shepherds from their flocks. It had kings about it now, kneeling with the poor and foolish, kings who had laid down their crowns, who brought the gold of loyal hearts, the myrrh of desired martyrdom, and the incense of pure faith. Could not republics too lay aside their splendor, mobs be tamed, selfishness deny itself, and wisdom confess its ignorance? Then he remembered Felsenberg, and his heart sickened within him. Six days later, Percy rose as usual, said his mass, breakfasted, and sat down to say his office until his servant should summon him to vest for the pontifical mass. He had learned to expect bad news now so constantly, of apostasies, deaths, losses, that the lull of the previous week had come to him with extraordinary refreshment. It appeared to him as if his musings in St. Anastasia had been truer than he thought, and that the sweetness of the old feast had not yet wholly lost its power, even over a world that denied its substance. For nothing at all had happened of importance. A few more martyrdoms had been chronicled, but they had been isolated cases, and of Felsenberg there had been no tidings at all. Europe confessed its ignorance of his business. On the other hand, tomorrow, Percy knew very well, would be a day of extraordinary moment in England and Germany at any rate, 
for in England it was appointed as the first occasion of compulsory worship throughout the country, while it was the second in Germany. Men and women would have to declare themselves now. He had seen on the previous evening a photograph of the image that was to be worshipped next day in the abbey, and in a fit of loathing he had torn it to shreds. It represented a nude woman, huge and majestic, entrancingly lovely, with head and shoulders thrown back, as one who sees a strange and heavenly vision, arms downstretched and hands a little raised, with wide fingers as in astonishment. The whole attitude with feet and knees pressed together, suggestive of expectation, hope, and wonder. In devilish mockery, her long hair was crowned with twelve stars. This, then, was the spouse of the other, the embodiment of man's ideal maternity, still waiting for her child. When the white scraps lay like poisonous snow at his feet, he had sprung across the room to his prie-dieu and fallen there in an agony of reparation. "'Oh, mother, mother!' he cried to the stately queen of heaven, who, with her true son long ago in her arms, looked down on him from her bracket, no more than that. But he was still again this morning, and celebrated St. Sylvester, Pope and Martyr, the last saint in the procession of the Christian year, with tolerable equanimity. The sights of last night, the throng of officials, the stately, scarlet, unfamiliar figures of the cardinals who had come in from the north, south, east, and west, these helped to reassure him again, unreasonably as he knew, yet effectually. The very air was electric with expectation. All night the piazza had been crowded by a huge, silent mob waiting till the opening of the doors at seven o'clock. Now the church itself was full, and the piazza full again. Far down the street to the river, so far as he could see as he had leaned from his window just now, lay that solemn, motionless pavement of heads. The roof of the colonnade showed a fringe of them, the housetops were black, and this in the bitter cold of a clear, frosty morning, for it was announced that after Mass and the proceeding of the members of the order past the pontifical throne, the Pope would give apostolic benediction to the city and the world. Percy finished terse, closed his book, and lay back. His servant would be here in a minute now. His mind began to run over the function, and he reflected that the entire sacred college, with the exception of the Cardinal Protector of Jerusalem, detained by sickness, numbering 64 members, would take part. This would mean a unique sight by and by. Eight years before, he remembered, after the freedom of Rome, there had been a similar assembly. But the cardinals at that time amounted to no more than 53, all told, and four had been absent. Then he heard voices in his anteroom, a quick step, and a loud English expostulation. That was curious, and he sat up. Then he heard a sentence. His eminence must go to vest. It is useless. There was a sharp answer, a faint scuffle, and a snatch at the handle. This was indecent. So Percy stood up, made three strides of it to the door, and tore it open. A man stood there whom at first he did not recognize, pale and disordered. Why? began Percy and recoiled. Mr. Phillips, he said. The other threw out his hands. It is I, sir, y your eminence. This moment arrived. It is life and death. Your servant tells me. Who sent you? Father Blackmore. Good news or bad? The man rolled his eyes towards the servant, who still stood erect and offended a yard away, and Percy understood. He put his hand on the other's arm, drawing him through the doorway. Tap upon this door in two minutes, James, he said. They passed across the polished floor together. Percy went to his usual place in the window, leaned against the shutter, and spoke. Tell me in one sentence, sir, he said to the breathless man. There is a plot among the Catholics. They intend destroying the abbey tomorrow with explosives. I knew that the Pope... Percy cut him short with a gesture. Chapter 6 The Volor stage was comparatively empty this afternoon, as the little party of six stepped out onto it from the lift. There was nothing to distinguish these from ordinary travelers. 
the two cardinals of Germany and England, were wrapped in plain furs, without insignia of any kind. Their chaplains stood near them, while the two men servants hurried forward with the bags to secure a private compartment. The four kept complete silence, watching the busy movements of the officials on board, staring unseeingly at the sleek, polished monster that lay netted in steel at their feet, and the great folded fins that would presently be cutting the thin air at 150 miles an hour. Then Percy, by a sudden movement, turned from the others, went to the open window that looked over Rome, and leaned there with his elbows on the sill, looking. It was a strange view before him. It was darkening now toward sunset, and the sky, primrose green overhead, deepened to a dear tawny orange above the horizon, with a sanguine line or two at the edge, and beneath that lay the deep evening violet of the city, blotted here and there by the black of cypresses, and cut by the thin leafless pinnacles of the poplar grove that aspired without the walls. But right across the picture rose the enormous dome of an indescribable tint. It was gray, it was violet, it was what the eye chose to make it. And through it, giving its solidity the air of a bubble, shone the southern sky, flushed too with faint orange. It was this that was supreme and dominant. The serrated line of domes, spires, and pinnacles, the crowded roofs beneath, in the Valle dell'Inferno, the fairy hills far away, all were but the annex to this mighty tabernacle of God. Already lights were beginning to shine, as for thirty centuries they had shone. Thin straight skeins of smoke were ascending against the darkening sky. The hum of this mother of cities was beginning to be still, for the keen air kept folks indoors. And the evening peace was descending that closed another day and another year. Beneath in the narrow streets Percy could see tiny figures hurrying like belated ants. The crack of a whip, the cry of a woman, the wail of a child came up to this immense elevation like details of a murmur from another world. They too would soon be quiet, and there would be peace. A heavy bell beat faintly from far away, and the drowsy city turned to murmur its good night to the Mother of God. From a thousand towers came the tiny melody, floating across the great airspaces, in a thousand accents, the solemn bass of St. Peter's, the mellow tenor of the Lateran, the rough cry from some old slum church, the peevish tinkle of convents and chapels, all softened and made mystical in this grave evening air. It was the wedding of delicate sound and clear light. Above the liquid orange sky, beneath the sweet subdued ecstasy of bells. Alma Redemptoris Mater, whispered Percy, his eyes wet with tears. Gentle mother of the Redeemer, the open door of the sky, the star of the sea, have mercy on sinners. The angel of the Lord announced it to Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Ghost. Pour, therefore, Lord, thy grace into our hearts. Let us who know Christ's incarnation rise through passion and cross to the glory of resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Another bell clanged sharply close at hand, calling him down to earth, and wrong, and labor, and grief. And he turned to see the motionless Volor itself, one blaze of brilliant internal light, and the two priests following the German cardinal across the gangway. It was the rear compartment that the men had taken, and when he had seen that the old man was comfortable, Still without a word, he passed out again into the central passage to see the last of Rome. The exit door had now been snapped, and as Percy stood at the opposite window, looking out at the high wall that would presently sink beneath him, throughout the whole of the delicate frame began to run the vibration of the electric engine. There was the murmur of talking somewhere, a heavy step shook the floor, a bell clanged again, twice, and a sweet wind chord sounded. Again it sounded, the vibration ceased, and the edge of the high wall against the tawny sky on which he had fixed his eyes sank suddenly like a dropped bar, and he staggered a little in his place. A moment later the dome rose again, and itself sank. The city, a fringe of towers and a mass of dark roofs, pricked with light, spanned like a whirlpool. The jeweled stars themselves sprang this way and that, and with one more long cry the marvelous machine righted itself, beat with its wings, and settled down, 
with the note of the flying air passing through rising shrillness into vibrant silence to its long voyage to the north. Further and further sank the city behind. It was a patch now, grayness on black. The sky seemed to grow more huge and all-containing as the earth relapsed into darkness. It glowed like a vast dome of wonderful glass, darkening even as it glowed. And as Percy dropped his eyes once more around the extreme edge of the car, the city was but a line and a bubble, a line and a swelling, a line and nothingness. He drew a long breath and went back to his friends. "'Tell me again,' said the old cardinal when the two were settled down opposite to one another and the chaplains were gone to another compartment. "'Who is this man?' "'This man?' He was secretary to Olive Brand, one of our politicians. He fetched me to old Mrs. Brand's deathbed and lost his place in consequence. He is in journalism now. He is perfectly honest. No, he is not a Catholic, though he longs to be one. That is why they confided in him. And they? I know nothing of them, except that they are a desperate set. They have enough faith to act, but not enough to be patient. I suppose they thought this man would sympathize, but unfortunately he has a conscience, and he also sees that any attempt of this kind would be the last straw on the back of toleration. Eminence, do you realize how violently the feeling is against us? The old man shook his head lamentably. Do I not? He murmured. And my Germans are in it? Are you sure? Eminence, it is a vast plot. It has been simmering for months. There have been meetings every week. They have kept the secret marvelously. Your Germans only delayed that the blow might be more complete. And now, tomorrow... Percy drew back with a despairing gesture. And the Holy Father? I went to him as soon as Mass was over. He withdrew all opposition and sent for you. It is our one chance, Eminence. And you think our plan will hinder it? I have no idea, but I can think of nothing else. I shall go straight to the Archbishop and tell him all. We arrive, I believe, at three o'clock, and you in Berlin about seven, I suppose, by German time. The function is fixed for eleven. By eleven, then, we shall have done all that is possible. The government will know, and they will know, too, that we are innocent in Rome. I imagine they will cause it to be announced that the Cardinal Protector and the Archbishop with his coadjutors will be present in the sacristies. They will double every guard, they will parade volors overhead, and then, well, in God's hand be the rest. Do you think the conspirators will attempt it? I have no idea, said Percy shortly. I understand they have alternate plans. Just so. If all is clear, they intend dropping the explosive from above. If not, at least three men have offered to sacrifice themselves by taking it into the abbey themselves. And you, Eminence? The old man eyed him steadily. My program is yours, he said. Eminence, have you considered the effect in either case? If nothing happens... If nothing happens, we shall be accused of a fraud, of seeking to advertise ourselves. If anything happens, well, we shall all go before God together. Pray God it may be the second, he added passionately. It will be at least easier to bear, observed the old man. I beg your pardon, Eminence, I should not have said that. There fell a silence between the two, in which no sound was heard but the faint, untiring vibration of the screw and the sudden cough of a man in the next compartment. Percy leaned his head wearily on his hand and stared from the window. The earth was now dark beneath them, an immense emptiness. Above, the huge engulfing sky was still faintly luminous, and through the high frosty mist through which they moved, stars glimmered now and again as the car swayed and tacked across the wind. "'It will be cold among the Alps,' murmured Percy. Then he broke off. "'And I have not one shred of evidence,' he said. "'Nothing but the word of a man.' And you are sure? I am sure. Eminence, said the German suddenly, staring straight into his face. The likeness is extraordinary. Percy smiled listlessly. He was tired of hearing that. What do you make of it? persisted the other. I have been asked that before, said Percy. I have no views. It seems to me that God means something. 
murmured the German heavily, still staring at him. Well, Eminence? A kind of antithesis, a reverse of the medal, I do not know. Again there was silence. A chaplain looked in through the glazed door, a homely blue-eyed German, and was waved away once more. Eminence, said the old man abruptly, there is surely more to speak of, plans to be made. Percy shook his head. There are no plans to be made, he said. We know nothing but the fact. No names, nothing. We, we are like children in a tiger's cage, and one of us has just made a gesture in the tiger's face. I suppose we shall communicate with one another? If we are in existence. It was curious how Percy took the lead. He had worn his scarlet for about three months, and his companion for twelve years. Yet it was the younger who dictated plans and arranged. He was scarcely conscious of its strangeness, however. Ever since the shocking news of the morning, when a new mine had been sprung under the shaking church, and he had watched the stately ceremonial, the gorgeous splendor, the dignified, tranquil movements of the Pope in his court, with a secret that burned his heart and brain, above all since that quick interview in which old plans had been reversed and a startling decision formed, and a blessing given and received and a farewell looked not uttered, all done in half an hour, his whole nature had concentrated itself into one keen, tense force, like a coiled spring. He felt power tingling to his fingertips, power in the dullness of an immense despair. Every prop had been cut, every brace severed. He, the city of Rome, the Catholic Church, the very supernatural itself, seemed to hang now on one single thing, the finger of God. And if that failed, well, nothing would ever matter any more. He was going now to one of two things, ignominy or death. There was no third thing, unless, indeed, the conspirators were actually taken with their instruments upon them, but that was impossible. Either they would refrain, knowing that God's ministers would fall with them, and in that case there would be the ignominy of a detected fraud, of a miserable attempt to win credit. Or they would not refrain, they would count the death of a cardinal and a few bishops a cheap price to pay for revenge, and in that case, well, there was death and judgment. But Percy had ceased to fear. No ignominy could be greater than that which he already bore, the ignominy of loneliness and discredit. And death could be nothing but sweet. It would at least be knowledge and rest. He was willing to risk all on God. The other, with a little gesture of apology, took out his office book presently and began to read. Percy looked at him with an immense envy. Ah, if only he were as old as that. He could bear a year or two more of this misery, but not fifty years, he thought. It was an almost endless vista that, even if things went well, opened before him, of continual strife, self-repression, energy, misrepresentation from his enemies. The church was sinking further every day. What if this new spasm of fervor were no more than the dying flare of faith? How could he bear that? He would have to see the tide of atheism rise higher and more triumphant every day. Felsenberg had given it an impetus of whose end there was no prophesying. Never before had a single man wielded the full power of democracy. Then once more he looked forward to the morrow. Oh, if it could but end in death. Beati mortui qui in domino moriuntur. It was no good. It was cowardly to think in this fashion. After all, God was God. He takes up the aisles as a very little thing. Percy took out his office book, found Prime and St. Sylvester, signed himself with the cross, and began to pray. A minute later, the two chaplains slipped in once more and sat down, and all was silent save for the throb of the screw and the strange whispering rush of air outside. It was about nineteen o'clock that the ruddy English conductor looked in at the doorway, waking Percy from his doze. Dinner will be served in half an hour, gentlemen, he said, speaking Esperanto as the rule was on international cars. We do not stop at Turin tonight. He shut the door and went out, and the sound of closing doors came down the corridor as he made the same announcement to each compartment. There were no passengers to descend at Turin, then, reflected Percy. 
and no doubt a wireless message had been received that there were none to come on board either. That was good news. It would give him more time in London. It might even enable Cardinal Steinman to catch an earlier volor from Paris to Berlin, but he was not sure how they ran. It was a pity that the German had not been able to catch the 13 o'clock from Rome to Berlin direct, so he calculated in a kind of superficial insensibility. He stood up presently to stretch himself, then he passed out and along the corridor to the lavatory to wash his hands. He became fascinated by the view as he stood before the basin at the rear of the car, for even now they were passing over Turin. It was a blur of light, vivid and beautiful, that shone beneath him in the midst of this gulf of darkness, sweeping away southwards into the gloom as the car sped on towards the Alps. How little, he thought, seemed this great city seen from above, and yet how mighty it was. It was from that glimmer, already five miles behind, that Italy was controlled. In one of these dolls' houses of which he had caught but a glimpse, men sat in council over souls and bodies, and abolished God and smiled at his church. And God allowed it all, and made no sign. It was there that Felsenberg had been, a month or two ago. Felsenberg, his double, and again the mental sword tore and stabbed at his heart. A few minutes later, the four ecclesiastics were sitting at their round table in a little screened compartment of the dining room in the bows of the airship. It was an excellent dinner, served, as usual, from the kitchen in the bowels of the volor, and rose, course by course, with a smooth click into the center of the table. There was a bottle of red wine to each diner, and both table and chairs swung easily to the very slight motion of the ship. But they did not talk much, for there was only one subject possible to the two cardinals, and the chaplains had not yet been admitted into the full secret. It was growing cold now, and even the hot-air footrest did not quite compensate for the deathly iciness of the breath that began to stream down from the Alps, which the ship was now approaching at a slight incline. It was necessary to rise at least 9,000 feet from the usual level in order to pass the frontier of the Mont-Senis at a safe angle, and at the same time it was necessary to go a little slower over the Alps themselves, owing to the extreme rarity of the air and the difficulty in causing the screw to revolve sufficiently quickly to counteract it. There will be clouds tonight, said a voice clear and distinct from the passage as the door swung slightly to a movement of the car. Percy got up and closed it. The German cardinal began to grow a little fidgety towards the end of dinner. I shall go back, he said. I shall be better in my fur rug. His chaplain dutifully went after him, leaving his own dinner unfinished, and Percy was left alone with Father Corcoran, his English chaplain lately from Scotland. He finished his wine, ate a couple of figs, and then sat staring out through the plate glass window in front. Ah, he said. Excuse me, Father. These are the Alps at last. The front of the car consisted of three divisions, in the center of one of which stood the steersman, his eyes looking straight ahead and his hands upon the wheel. On either side of him, separated from him by aluminum walls, was contrived a narrow slip of a compartment, with a long curved window at the height of a man's eyes, through which a magnificent view could be obtained. It was to one of these that Percy went, passing along the corridor, and seeing through half-open doors other parties still over their wine. He pushed the spring door on the left and went through. He had crossed the Alps three times before in his life, and well remembered the extraordinary effect they had had on him, especially as he had once seen them from a great altitude upon a clear day, an eternal, immeasurable sea of white ice, broken by hummocks and wrinkles, that from below were soaring peaks named and reverenced, and beyond the spherical curve of the earth's edge that dropped in a haze of air into unutterable space. But this time they seemed more amazing than ever, and he looked out on them with the interest of a sick child. The car was now ascending rapidly towards the pass up across the huge tumbled slopes, ravines, and cliffs that lie like outworks of the enormous wall. Seen from this great height, they were in themselves comparatively insignificant, but they at least suggested the vastness of the bastions of which they were no more than buttresses. As Percy turned, he could see the moonless sky alight with frosty stars, 
and the dimness of the illumination made the scene even more impressive. But as he turned again, there was a change. The vast air about him seemed now to be perceived through frosted glass. The velvet blackness of the pine forest had faded to heavy gray, the pale glint of water and ice seen and gone again in a moment, the monstrous nakedness of rock spires and slopes, rising towards him and sliding away again beneath with a crawling motion. All these had lost their distinctness of outline and were veiled in invisible white. As he looked yet higher to right and left, the sight became terrifying, for the giant walls of rock rushing towards him, the huge grotesque shapes towering on all sides, ran upward into a curtain of cloud visible only from the dancing radiance thrown upon it by the brilliantly lighted car. Even as he looked, two straight fingers of splendor resembling horns shot out as the bow searchlights were turned on, and the car itself, already traveling at half speed, dropped to quarter speed and began to sway softly from side to side as the huge airplanes beat the mist through which they moved, and the antenna of light pierced it. Still up they went, and on, yet swift enough to let Percy see one great pinnacle rear itself, elongate, sink down into a cruel needle, and vanish into nothingness a thousand feet below. The motion grew yet more nauseous, as the car moved up at a sharp angle preserving its level, simultaneously rising, advancing, and swaying. Once, hoarse and sonorous, an unfrozen torrent roared like a beast, it seemed within twenty yards, and was dumb again on the instant. Now, too, the horns began to cry, long, lamentable hootings, ringing sadly in that echoing desolation like the wail of wandering souls. And as Percy, awed beyond feeling, wiped the gathering moisture from the glass and stared again, it appeared as if he floated now, motionless except for the slight rocking beneath his feet, in a world of whiteness, as remote from earth as from heaven, poised in hopeless infinite space, blind, alone, frozen, lost in a white hell of desolation. Once, as he stared, a huge whiteness moved towards him through the veil, slid slowly sideways and down, disclosing, as the car veered, a gigantic slope smooth as oil, with one cluster of black rock cutting it like the fingers of a man's hand groping from a mountainous wave. Then, as once more the car cried aloud like a lost sheep, there answered it, it seemed scarcely ten yards away, first one windy scream of dismay, another and another, a clang of bells, a chorus broke out, and the air was full of the beating wings. There was one horrible instant before a clang of a bell, the answering scream, and a whirling motion showed that the steersman was alert. Then like a stone the car dropped, and Percy clutched at the rail before him to steady the terrible sensation of falling into emptiness. He could hear behind him the crash of crockery, the bumping of heavy bodies, and as the car again checked on its wide wings, a rush of footsteps broke out in a cry or two of dismay. Outside, but high and far away, the hooting went on, the air was full of it, and in a flash he recognized that it could not be one or ten or twenty cars, but at least a hundred that had answered the call, and that somewhere overhead were hooting and flapping. The invisible ravines and cliffs on all sides took up the crying. Long wails whooped and moaned and died amid a clash of bells, further and further every instant, but now in every direction, behind, above, in front, and far to right and left. Once more the car began to move, sinking in a long, still curve towards the face of the mountain, and as it checked and began to sway again on its huge wings, he turned to the door, seeing as he did so, through the cloudy windows in the glow of light, a spire of rock not thirty feet below rising from the mist, and one smooth shoulder of snow curving away into invisibility. Within, the car showed brutal signs of the sudden check. The doors of the dining compartments, as he passed along, were flung wide. Glasses, plates, pools of wine and tumbled fruit rolled to and fro on the heaving floors. One man, sitting helplessly on the ground, rolled vacant, terrified eyes upon the priest. He glanced in at the door through which he had come just now, and Father Corcoran staggered up from his seat and came towards him, reeling at the motion underfoot. 
Simultaneously, there was a rush from the opposite door, where a party of Americans had been dining. And as Percy, beckoning with his head, turned again to go down to the stern end of the ship, he found the narrow passage blocked with the crowd that had run out. A babble of talking and cries made questions impossible. And Percy, with his chaplain behind him, gripped the aluminum paneling and, step by step, began to make his way in search of his friends. Halfway down the passage, as he pushed and struggled, a voice made itself heard above the din, and in the momentary silence that followed, again sounded the faraway crying of the volors overhead. Seats, gentlemen, seats, roared the voice. We are moving immediately. Then the crowd melted as the conductor came through, red-faced and determined, and Percy, springing into his wake, found his way clear to the stern. The cardinal seemed none the worse. He had been asleep, he explained, and saved himself in time from rolling onto the floor, but his old face twitched as he talked. But what was it? he said. What is the meaning? Father Becklin related how he had actually seen one of the troop of volors within five yards of the window. It was crowded with faces, he said, from stem to stern. Then it had soared suddenly and vanished in whirls of mist. Percy shook his head, saying nothing. He had no explanation. They are inquiring, I understand, said Father Becklin again. The conductor was at his instrument just now. There was nothing to be seen from the windows now, only, as Percy stared out, still dazed with the shock, he saw the cruel needle of rock wavering beneath as if seen through water, and the huge shoulder of snow swaying softly up and down. It was quieter outside. It appeared that the flock had passed, only somewhere from an infinite height still sounded a fitful wailing, as if a lonely bird were wandering, lost in space. That is the signaling volor, murmured Percy to himself. He had no theory, no suggestion. Yet the matter seemed an ominous one. It was unheard of that an encounter with a hundred volors should take place, and he wondered why they were going southwards. Again the name of Felsenberg came to his mind. What if that sinister man were still somewhere overhead? Eminence, began the old man again, but at that instant the car began to move. A bell clanged, a vibration tingled underfoot, and then, soft as a flake of snow, the great ship began to rise, its movement perceptible only by the sudden drop and vanishing of the spire of rock at which Percy still stared. Slowly the snowfield, too, began to flit downwards, a black cleft whisked smoothly into sight from above, and disappeared again below. And a moment later, once more, the car seemed poised in white space as it climbed the slope of air down which it had dropped just now. Again the wind cord rent the atmosphere, and this time the answer was as faint and distant as a cry from another world. The speed quickened, and the steady throb of the screw began to replace the swaying motion of the wings. Again came the hoot, wild and echoing through the barren wilderness of rock walls beneath, and again with a sudden impulse the car soared. It was going in great circles now, cautious as a cat, climbing, climbing, punctuating the ascent with cry after cry, searching the blind air for dangers. Once again a vast white slope came into sight, illuminated by the glare from the windows, sinking ever more and more swiftly, receding and approaching, until for one instant a jagged line of rocks grinned like teeth through the mist, dropped away and vanished, and with a clash of bells and a last scream of warning, the throb of the screw passed from a whir to a rising note, and the note to stillness, as the huge ship, clear at last of the frontier peaks, shook out her wings steady once more, and set out for her humming flight through space. Whatever it was, was behind them now, vanished into the thick night. There was a sound of talking from the interior of the car, hasty, breathless voices, questioning, exclaiming, and the authoritative terse answer of the guard. A step came along outside, and Percy sprang to meet it, but, as he laid his hand on the door, it was pushed from without, and to his astonishment the English guard came straight through, closing it behind him. He stood there, looking strangely at the four priests, with compressed lips and anxious eyes. "'Well?' cried Percy. "'All right, gentlemen, but I'm thinking you'd better descend at Paris. 
I know who you are, gentlemen, and though I'm not a Catholic... He stopped again. For God's sakes, man, began Percy. Oh, the news, gentlemen. Well, it was 200 cars going to Rome. There is a Catholic plot, sir, discovered in London. Well? To wipe out the Abbey. So they're going... Ah, yes, sir, to wipe out Rome. Then he was gone again. Chapter 7 It was nearly sixteen o'clock on the same day, the last day of the year, that Mabel went into the little church that stood in the street beneath her house. The dark was falling softly layer on layer. Across the roofs to westward burned the smoldering fire of the winter sunset, and the interior was full of the dying light. She had slept a little in her chair that afternoon, and had awakened with that strange, cleansed sense of spirit and mind that sometimes follows such sleep. She wondered later how she could have slept at such a time, and above all, how it was that she had perceived nothing of that cloud of fear and fury that even now was falling over town and country alike. She remembered afterwards an unusual busyness on the broad tracks beneath her as she had looked out on them from her windows, and an unusual calling of horns and whistles. But she thought nothing of it, and passed down an hour later for a meditation in the church. She had grown to love the quiet place, and came in often like this to steady her thoughts and concentrate them on the significance that lay beneath the surface of life the huge principles upon which all lived, and which so plainly were the true realities. Indeed, such devotion was becoming almost recognized among certain classes of people. Addresses were delivered now and then, little books were being published as guides to the interior life, curiously resembling the old Catholic books on mental prayer. She went today to her usual seat, sat down, folded her hands, looked for a minute or two upon the old stone sanctuary, the white image and the darkening window. Then she closed her eyes and began to think, according to the method she followed. First, she concentrated her attention on herself, detaching it from all that was merely external and transitory, withdrawing it inwards, inwards until she had found that secret spark which, beneath all frailties and activities, made her a substantial member of the divine race of humankind. This, then, was the first step. The second consisted in an act of the intellect followed by one of the imagination. All men possessed that spark, she considered. Then she sent out her powers, sweeping with the eyes of her mind the seething world, seeing beneath the light and dark of the two hemispheres the countless millions of mankind, children coming into the world, old men leaving it, the mature rejoicing in it and their own strength. Back through the ages she looked, through those centuries of crime and blindness, as the race rose through savagery and superstition to a knowledge of themselves. On through the ages yet to come, as generation followed generation to some climax whose perfection, she told herself, she could not fully comprehend because she was not of it. Yet she told herself again that climax had already been born. The birth pangs were over, for had not he come who was the heir of time? Then by a third and vivid act she realized the unity of all, the central fire of which each spark was but a radiation, that vast passionless divine being, realizing himself up through these centuries, one yet many, him whom men had called God, now no longer unknown, but recognized as the transcendent total of themselves. Him who now, with the coming of the new Savior, had stirred and awakened and shown himself as one. And there she stayed, contemplating the vision of her mind, detaching now this virtue, now that, for a particular assimilation, dwelling on her deficiencies, seeing in the whole the fulfillment of all aspirations, the sum of all for which men had hoped, that spirit of peace, so long hindered, yet generated too perpetually by the passions of the world, forced into outline and being by the energy of individual lives, realizing itself in pulse after pulse, dominant at last, serene, manifest, and triumphant. There she stayed, losing the sense of individuality, 
merging it by a long, sustained effort of the will, drinking, as she thought, long breaths of the spirit of life and love. Some sound, she supposed afterwards, disturbed her, and she opened her eyes. And there before her lay the quiet pavement, glimmering through the dusk, the step of the sanctuary, the rostrum on the right, and the peaceful spate of darkening air above the white mother figure and against the tracery of the old window. It was here that men had worshipped Jesus, that blood-stained man of sorrow, who had borne, even on his own confession, not peace but a sword. Yet they had knelt, those blind and hopeless Christians. Ah, the pathos of it all, the despairing acceptance of any creed that would account for sorrow, the wild worship of any god who would claim to bear it. And again came the sound, striking across her peace, though as yet she did not understand why. It was nearer now, and she turned in astonishment to look down the dusky nave, it was from without that the sound had come, that strange murmur that rose and fell again as she listened. She stood up, her heart quickening a little. Only once before had she heard such a sound, once before, in a square, where men raged about a point beneath a platform. She stepped swiftly out of her seat, passed down the aisle, drew back the curtains beneath the west window, lifted the latch, and stepped out. The street, from where she looked over the railings that barred the entrance to the church, seemed unusually empty and dark. To right and left stretched the houses. Overhead, the darkening sky was flushed with rose, but it seemed as if the public lights had been forgotten. There was not a living being to be seen. She had put her hand on the latch of the gate to open it and go out, when a sudden patter of footsteps made her hesitate, and the next instant a child appeared, panting, breathless and terrified, running with her hands before her. "'They're coming! They're coming!' sobbed the child, seeing the face looking at her. Then she clung to the bars, staring over her shoulder. Mabel lifted the latch in an instant. The child sprang in, ran to the door and beat against it, then turning, seized her dress and cowered against her. Mabel shut the gate. There, there, she said. Who is it? Who are coming? But the child hid her face, drawing at the kindly skirts, and the next moment came the roar of voices and the trampling of footsteps. It was not more than a few seconds before the heralds of that grim procession came past. First came a flying squadron of children, laughing, terrified, fascinated, screaming, turning their heads as they ran, with a dog or two yelping amongst them and a few women drifting sideways along the pavements. The face of a man, Mabel saw as she glanced in terror upwards, had appeared at the windows opposite, pale and eager, some invalid, no doubt, dragging himself to see. One group, a well-dressed man in grey, a couple of women carrying babies, a solemn-faced boy, halted immediately before her on the other side of the railings, all talking, none listening, and these two turned their faces to the road on the left, up which every instant the clamour and trampling grew. Yet she could not ask, her lips moved, but no sound came from them. She was one incarnate apprehension. Across her intense fixity moved pictures of no importance. Of Oliver as he had been at breakfast. Of her own bedroom with its softened paper. Of the dark sanctuary and the white figure on which she had looked just now. They were coming thicker now. A troop of young men with their arms linked swayed into sight, all talking or crying aloud, none listening, all across the roadway, and behind them surged the crowd, like a wave in a stone-fenced channel, male scarcely distinguishable from female in that pack of faces, and under that sky that grew darker every instant. Except for the noise which Mabel now hardly noticed, so thick and incessant it was, so complete her concentration in the sense of sight, except for that it might have been, from its suddenness and overwhelming force, some mob of phantoms trooping on a sudden out of some vista of the spiritual world visible across an open space, and about to vanish again in obscurity. That empty street was full now on this side and that, so far as she could see. The young men were gone, running or walking, she hardly knew, round the corner to the right, 
and the entire space was one stream of heads and faces, pressing so fiercely that the group at the railings were detached like weeds and drifted too, sideways, clutching at the bars, and swept away too and vanished, and all the while the child tugged and tore at her skirts. Certain things began to appear now above the heads of the crowd, objects she could not distinguish in the failing light, poles and fantastic shapes, fragments of stuff resembling banners, moving as if alive, turning from side to side, borne from beneath. Faces distorted with passion looked at her from time to time as the moving show went past. Open mouths cried at her, but she hardly saw them. She was watching those strange emblems, straining her eyes through the dusk, striving to distinguish the battered, broken shapes, half-guessing, yet afraid to guess. Then on a sudden, from the hidden lamps beneath the eaves, light leapt into being. That strong, sweet, familiar light generated by the great engines underground that, in the passion of that catastrophic day, all men had forgotten. And in a moment all changed from a mob of phantoms and shapes into a pitiless reality of life and death. Before her moved a great rood, with a figure upon it, of which one arm hung from the nailed hand, swinging as it went. An embroidery streamed behind with the swiftness of the motion. And next after it came the naked body of a child, impaled, white and ruddy, the head fallen upon the breast, and the arms too dangling and turning. And next the figure of a man, hanging by the neck, dressed, it seemed, in a kind of black gown and cape, with its black-capped head twisting from the twisting rope. The same night, Oliver Brand came home about an hour before midnight. For himself, what he had heard and seen that day was still too vivid and too imminent for him to judge of it coolly. He had seen, from his windows in Whitehall, Parliament Square filled with a mob the like of which had not been known in England since the days of Christianity, a mob full of a fury that could scarcely draw its origin except from sources beyond the reach of sense. Thrice during the hours that followed the publication of the Catholic plot and the outbreak of mob law, he had communicated with the Prime Minister asking whether nothing could be done to allay the tumult. And on both occasions he had received the doubtful answer that what could be done would be done, that force was inadmissible at present, but that the police were doing all that was possible. As regarded the dispatch of the Volers to Rome, he had assented by silence, as had the rest of the council. That was, Snowford had said, a judicial punitive act, regrettable but necessary. Peace, in this instance, could not be secured except on terms of war, or rather, since war was obsolete, by the sternness of justice. These Catholics had shown themselves the avowed enemies of society. Very well, then society must defend itself, at least this once. Man was still human, and Oliver had listened and said nothing. As he passed in one of the government volors over London on his way home, he had caught more than one glimpse of what was proceeding beneath him. The streets were as bright as day, shadowless and clear in the white light, and every roadway was a crawling serpent. From beneath rose up a steady roar of voices, soft and woolly, punctuated by cries. From here and there ascended the smoke of burning, and once, as he flitted over one of the great squares to the south of Battersea, he had seen, as it were, a scattered squadron of ants running as if in fear or pursuit. He knew what was happening. Well, after all, man was not yet perfectly civilized. He did not like to think of what awaited him at home. Once, about five hours earlier, he had listened to his wife's voice through the telephone, and what he had heard had nearly caused him to leave all and go to her. Yet he was scarcely prepared for what he found. As he came into the sitting room, there was no sound, except that faraway hum from the seething streets below. The room seemed strangely dark and cold. The only light that entered was through one of the windows from which the curtains were withdrawn, and silhouetted against the luminous sky beyond was the upright figure of a woman looking and listening. He pressed the knob of the electric light, and Mabel turned slowly towards him. She was in her day dress, with a cloak thrown over her shoulders, and her face was almost as that of a stranger. It was perfectly colorless, 
Her lips were compressed and her eyes full of an emotion which she could not interpret. It might equally have been anger, terror, or misery. She stood there in the steady light, motionless, looking at him. For a moment he did not trust himself to speak. He passed across to the window, closed it, and drew the curtains. Then he took that rigid figure gently by the arm. Mabel, he said. Mabel. She submitted to be drawn towards the sofa, but there was no response to his touch. He sat down and looked up at her with a kind of despairing apprehension. My dear, I am tired out, he said. Still she looked at him. There was in her pose that rigidity that actors simulate, yet he knew it for the real thing. He had seen that silence once or twice before in the presence of a horror. Once, at any rate, at the sight of a splash of blood on her shoe. Well, my darling, sit down at least, he said. She obeyed him mechanically, sat and still stared on him. In the silence once more that soft roar rose and died from the invisible world of tumult outside the windows. Within here all was quiet. He knew perfectly that two things strove within her, her loyalty to her faith and her hatred of those crimes in the name of justice. As he looked on her, he saw that these two were at death grips, that hatred was prevailing, and that she herself was little more than a passive battlefield. Then, as with a long-drawn howl of a wolf, there surged and sank the voices of the mob a mile away. The tension broke. She threw herself forward towards him. He caught her by the wrists, and so she rested, clasped in his arms, her face and bosom on his knees, and her whole body torn by emotion. For a full minute neither spoke. Oliver understood well enough, yet at present he had no words. He only drew her a little closer to himself, kissed her hair two or three times, and settled himself to hold her. He began to rehearse what he must say presently. Then she raised her flushed face for an instant, looked at him passionately, dropped her head again, and began to sob out broken words. He could only catch a sentence here and there, yet he knew what she was saying. It was the ruin of all her hopes, she sobbed, the end of her religion. Let her die, die and have done with it. It was all gone, gone, swept away in this murderous passion of the people of her faith. They were no better than Christians, after all, as fierce as the men on whom they avenged themselves, as dark as though the Savior, Julian, had never come. It was all lost. War and passion and murder had returned to the body from which she had thought them gone forever. The burning churches, the hunted Catholics, the raging of the streets on which she had looked that day, the bodies of the child and the priest carried on poles, the burning churches and convents, all streamed out, incoherent, broken by sobs, details of horror, lamentations, reproaches, interpreted by the writhing of her head and hands upon his knees. The collapse was complete. He put his hands again beneath her arms and raised her. He was worn out by his work, yet he knew he must quiet her. This was more serious than any previous crisis, yet he knew her power of recovery. Sit down, my darling, he said. There, give me your hands. Now, listen to me. He made really an admirable defense, for it was what he had been repeating to himself all day. Men were not yet perfect, he said. There ran in their veins the blood of men who for twenty centuries had been Christians. There must be no despair. Faith in man was of the very essence of religion. Faith in man's best self, in what he would become, not in what at present he actually was. They were at the beginning of the new religion, not in its maturity. There must be sourness in the young fruit. Consider, too, the provocation. Remember the appalling crime that these Catholics had contemplated. They had set themselves to strike the new faith at its very heart. My darling, he said, men are not changed in an instant. What if those Christians had succeeded? I condemn it all as strongly as you. I saw a couple of newspapers this afternoon that are as wicked as anything that the Christians have ever done. They exulted in all these crimes. It will throw the movement back ten years. 
Do you think that there are not thousands like yourself who hate and detest this violence? But what does faith mean except that we know that mercy will prevail? Faith, patience, and hope, these are our weapons. He spoke with passionate conviction, his eyes fixed on hers, in a fierce endeavor to give her his own confidence, and to reassure the remnants of his own doubtfulness. It was true that he too had hated what she hated, yet he saw things that she did not. Well, well, he told himself, he must remember that she was a woman. The look of frantic horror passed slowly out of her eyes, giving way to acute misery as he talked, and as his personality once more began to dominate her own. But it was not yet over. But the Volors, she cried, the Volors, that is deliberate, that is not the work of the mob. My darling, it is no more deliberate than the other. We are all human, we are all immature. Yes, the council permitted it, permitted it, remember. The German government, too, had to yield. We must tame nature slowly, we must not break it. He talked again for a few minutes, repeating his arguments, soothing, reassuring, encouraging, and he saw that he was beginning to prevail, but she returned to one of his words. Permitted it, and you permitted it. Dear, I said nothing, either for it or against it. I tell you that if we had forbidden it, there would have been yet more murder, and the people would have lost their rulers. We were passive, since we could do nothing. Ah, but it would have been better to die. Oh, Oliver, let me die at least. I cannot bear it. By her hands which he still held, he drew her nearer yet to himself. Sweetheart, he said gravely, can you not trust me a little? If I could tell you all that passed today, you would understand. But trust me that I am not heartless. And what of Julian Felsenberg? For a moment he saw hesitation in her eyes. Her loyalty to him and her loathing of all that had happened strove within her. Then once again loyalty prevailed. The name of Felsenberg weighed down the balance, and trust came back with the flood of tears. Oh, Oliver she said. I know I trust you, but I am so weak, and all is so terrible, and he so strong and merciful. And will he be with us tomorrow? It struck midnight from the clock tower a mile away as they yet sat and talked. She was still tremulous from the struggle, but she looked at him smiling, still holding his hands. He saw that the reaction was upon her in full force at last. The new year, my husband, she said, and rose as she said it, drawing him after her. I wish you a happy new year, she said. Oh, help me, Oliver. She kissed him and drew back, still holding his hands, looking at him with bright, tearful eyes. Oliver, she cried again, I must tell you this. Do you know what I thought before you came? He shook his head, staring at her greedily. How sweet she was. He felt her grip tighten on his hands. I thought I could not bear it, she whispered, that I must end it all. Ah, uh, you know what I mean. His heart flinched as he heard her and he drew her closer again to himself. It is all over, it is all over, she cried. Ah, do not look like that. I could not tell you if it was not. As their lips met again, there came the vibration of an electric bell from the next room, and Oliver, knowing what it meant, felt even in that instant a tremor shake his heart. He loosed her hands and still smiled at her. The bell, she said with a flash of apprehension. But is it all well between us again? Her face steadied itself into loyalty and confidence. It is all well, she said, and again the impatient bell tingled. Go, Oliver, I will wait here. A minute later he was back again, with a strange look on his white face and his lips compressed. He came straight up to her, taking her once more by the hands, and looking steadily into her steady eyes. In the hearts of both of them, resolve and faith were holding down the emotion that was not yet dead. He drew a long breath. Yes, he said in an even voice, it is over. Her lips moved and that deadly paleness lay on her cheeks. He gripped her firmly. Listen, he said. You must face it. It is over. 
Rome is gone. Now we must build something better. She threw herself, sobbing, into his arms. Chapter 8 Long before dawn on the first morning of the new year, the approaches to the abbey were already blocked. Victoria Street, Great George Street, Whitehall, even Millbank Street itself, were full and motionless. Broad Sanctuary, divided by the low-walled motor track, was itself cut into great blocks and wedges of people by the ways which the police kept open for the passage of important personages, and Palace Yard was kept rigidly clear except for one island, occupied by a stand which was itself full from top to bottom and end to end. All roofs and parapets which commanded a view of the abbey were also one mass of heads. Overhead, like solemn moons, burned the white lights of the electric globes. It was not known at exactly what hour the tumult had steadied itself to definite purpose, except to a few weary controllers of the temporary turnstiles which had been erected the evening before. It had been announced a week previously that, in consideration of the enormous demand for seats, all persons who presented their worship ticket at an authorized office and followed the directions issued by the police would be accounted as having fulfilled the duties of citizenship in that respect, and it was generally made known that it was the government's intention to toll the great bell of the abbey at the beginning of the ceremony and at the incensing of the image, during which period silence must be as far as possible preserved by all those within hearing. London had gone completely mad on the announcement of the Catholic plot on the afternoon before. The secret had leaked out about fourteen o'clock, an hour after the betrayal of the scheme to Mr. Snowford, and practically all commercial activities had ceased on the instant. By fifteen and a half, all stores were closed, the stock exchange, the city offices, the West End establishments, all had, as by irresistible impulse, suspended business, and from within two hours after noon until nearly midnight, when the police had been adequately reinforced and enabled to deal with the situation, whole mobs and armies of men, screaming squadrons of women, troops of frantic youths, had paraded the streets, howling, denouncing, and murdering. It was not known how many deaths had taken place, but there was scarcely a street without the signs of outrage. Westminster Cathedral had been sacked, every altar overthrown, indescribable indignities performed there. An unknown priest had scarcely been able to consume the Blessed Sacrament before he was seized and throttled. The archbishop with eleven priests and two bishops had been hanged at the north end of the church. Thirty-five convents had been destroyed. St. George's Cathedral burned to the ground. And it was reported even, by the evening papers, that it was believed that for the first time since the introduction of Christianity into England, there was not one tabernacle left within twenty miles of the abbey. London, explained the new people in huge headlines, was cleansed at last of dingy and fantastic nonsense. It was known at about fifteen and a half o'clock that at least seventy volors had left for Rome, and half an hour later that Berlin had reinforced them by sixty more. At midnight, fortunately at a time when the police had succeeded in shepherding the crowds into some kind of order, the news was flashed on to cloud and placard alike that the grim work was done and that Rome had ceased to exist. The early morning papers added a few details, pointing out, of course, the coincidence of the fall with the close of the year, relating how, by an astonishing chance, practically all the heads of the hierarchy throughout the world had been assembled in the Vatican, which had been the first object of attack, and how these, in desperation, it was supposed, had refused to leave the city when the news came, by wireless telegraphy, that the punitive force was on its way. There was not a building left in Rome. The entire place, Leonine City, Trastevere, suburbs, everything was gone. For the volors, poised at an immense height, had parceled out the city beneath them with extreme care before beginning to drop the explosives. And five minutes after the first roar from beneath and the first burst of smoke and flying fragments, the thing was finished. 
The volors had then dispersed in every direction, pursuing the motor and rail tracks along which the population had attempted to escape so soon as the news was known. And it was supposed that not less than 30,000 belated fugitives had been annihilated by this foresight. It was true, remarked the studio, that many treasures of incalculable value had been destroyed, but this was a cheap price to pay for the final and complete extermination of the Catholic pest. There comes a point, it remarked, when destruction is the only cure for a vermin-infested house, and it proceeded to observe that now that the Pope with the entire college of cardinals, all the ex-royalties of Europe, all the most frantic religionists from the inhabited world who had taken up their abode in the Holy City, were gone at a stroke, a recrudescence of the superstition was scarcely to be feared elsewhere. Yet care must be even now taken against any relenting. Catholics, if any were left bold enough to attempt it, must no longer be allowed to take any kind of part in the life of any civilized country. So far as messages had come in from other countries, there was but one chorus of approval at what had been done. A few papers regretted the incident, or rather the spirit which had lain behind it. It was not seemly, they said, that humanitarians should have recourse to violence, yet not one pretended that anything could be felt but thanksgiving for the general result. Ireland, too, must be brought into line. They must not dally any longer. It was now brightening slowly towards dawn, and beyond the river, through the faint wintry haze, a crimson streak or two began to burn. But all was surprisingly quiet, for this crowd, tired out with an all-night watch, chilled by the bitter cold, and intent on what lay before them, had no energy left for useless effort. Only from packed square and street and lane went up a deep, steady murmur like the sound of the sea a mile away, broken now and again by the hoot and clang of a motor and the rush of its passage as it tore eastwards round the circle through broad sanctuary and vanished citywards. And the light broadened, and the electric globe sickened and paled, and the haze began to clear a little, showing not the fresh blue that had been hoped for from the cold of the night, but a high, colorless vault of cloud, washed with gray and faint rose color, as the sun came up, a ruddy copper disk beyond the river. At nine o'clock the excitement rose a degree higher. The police between Whitehall and the Abbey, looking from their high platforms strung along the route, whence they kept watch and controlled the wire palisadings, showed a certain activity, and a minute later a police car whirled through the square between the palings and vanished around the abbey towers. The crowd murmured and shuffled and began to expect, and a cheer was raised when a moment later four more cars appeared, bearing the government insignia, and disappeared in the same direction. These were the officials, they said, going to Dean's Yard, where the procession would assemble. At about a quarter to ten, the crowd at the west end of Victoria Street began to raise its voice in a song, and by the time that it was over, and the bells had burst out from the Abbey's towers, a rumor had somehow made its entrance that Felsenberg was to be present at the ceremony. There was no assignable reason for this, neither then nor afterwards. In fact, the Evening Star declared that it was one more instance of the astonishing instinct of human beings en masse, for it was not until an hour later that even the government were made aware of the facts. Yet the truth remained that at half-past ten, one continuous roar went up, drowning even the brazen clamor of the bells, reaching round to Whitehall and the crowded pavements of Westminster Bridge, demanding Julian Felsenberg. Yet there had been absolutely no news of the President of Europe for the last fortnight, beyond an entirely unsupported report that he was somewhere in the East. And all the while, the motors poured from all directions towards the Abbey and disappeared under the arch into Dean's Yard bearing those fortunate persons whose tickets actually admitted them to the church itself. Cheers ran and rippled along the lines as the great men were recognized. Lord Pemberton, Oliver Brand and his wife, Mr. Caldecott, Maxwell, Snowford, with the European delegates, even melancholy-faced Mr. Francis himself, the government ceremoniarius, received a greeting. But by a quarter to eleven, when the pealing bells paused, the stream had stopped, 
the barriers issued out to stop the roads, the wire palisadings vanished, and the crowd for an instant, ceasing its roaring, sighed with relief at the relaxed pressure, and surged out into the roadways. Then once more the roaring began for Julian Felsenberg. The sun was now high, still a copper disc, above the Victoria Tower, but paler than an hour ago. The whiteness of the abbey, the heavy greys of Parliament House, the ten thousand tints of house roofs, heads, streamers, placards, began to disclose themselves. A single bell tolled five minutes to the hour, and the moments slipped by, until once more the bell stopped, and to the ears of those within hearing of the great west doors came the first blare of the huge organ, reinforced by trumpets. And then, as sudden and profound as the hush of death, there fell an enormous silence. As the five-minute bell began, sounding like a continuous wind note in the great vaults overhead, solemn and persistent, Mabel drew a long breath and leaned back in her seat from the rigid position in which for the last half hour she had been staring out at the wonderful sight. She seemed to herself to have assimilated it at last, to be herself once more, to have drunk her fill of the triumph and the beauty. She was as one who looks upon a summer sea on the morning after a storm, and now the climax was at hand. From end to end and side to side, the interior of the abbey presented a great broken mosaic of human faces, living slopes, walls, sections, and curves. The south transept directly opposite to her, from pavement to rose window, was one sheet of heads. The floor was paved with them, cut in two by the scarlet of the gangway leading from the chapel of St. Faith. On the right, the choir beyond the open space before the sanctuary was a mass of white figures, scarved and surpliced. The high organ gallery, beneath which the screen had been removed, was crowded with them, and far down beneath, the dim nave stretched the same endless pale living pavement to the shadow beneath the west window. Between every group of columns behind the choir stalls, before her to right, left, and behind, were platforms contrived in the masonry, and the exquisite roof, fan tracery, and soaring capital alone gave the eye an escape from humanity. The whole vast space was full, it seemed, of delicate sunlight that streamed in from the artificial light set outside each window and poured the ruby and the purple and the blue from the old glass in long shafts of color across the dusty air, and in broken patches on the faces and dresses behind. The murmur of ten thousand voices filled the place, supplying, it seemed, a solemn accompaniment to that melodious note that now pulsed above it. And finally, more significant than all, was the empty carpeted sanctuary at her feet, the enormous altar with its flight of steps, the gorgeous curtain, and the great untenanted sedilia. Mabel needed some reassurance, for last night, until the coming of Oliver, had passed for her as a kind of appalling waking dream. From the first shock of what she had seen outside the church, through those hours of waiting, with the knowledge that this was the way in which the spirit of peace asserted its superiority, up to that last moment when, in her husband's arms, she had learned of the fall of Rome, it had appeared to her as if her new world had suddenly corrupted about her. It was incredible, she told herself, that this ravening monster, dripping blood from claws and teeth, that had arisen roaring in the night, could be the humanity that had become her god. She had thought revenge and cruelty and slaughter to be the brood of Christian superstition, dead and buried under the newborn angel of light, and now it seemed that the monsters yet stirred and lived. All the evening she had sat, walked, lain about her quiet house with the horror heavy about her, flinging open a window now and again in the icy air to listen with clenched hands to the cries and the roarings of the mob that raged in the streets beneath the clanks, the yells, and the hoots of the motor trains that tore up from the country to swell the frenzy of the city, to watch the red glow of fire, the volumes of smoke that heaved up from the burning chapels and convents. She had questioned, doubted, resisted her doubts, flung out frantic acts of faith, attempted to renew the confidence that she attained in her meditation, told herself that traditions died slowly. She had knelt, crying out to the spirit of peace that lay, as she knew so well, at the heart of man, though overwhelmed for the moment by evil passion. 
A line or two ran in her head from one of the old Victorian poets. You doubt, if anyone could think or bid it? How could it come about? Who did it? Not men, not here. Oh, not beneath the sun. The torch that smoldered till the cup o'erran. The wrath of God, which is the wrath of man. She had even contemplated death, as she had told her husband, the taking of her own life, in a great despair with the world. Seriously, she had thought of it. It was an escape perfectly in accord with her morality. The useless and agonizing were put out of the world by common consent. The euthanasia houses witnessed to it. Then why not she? For she could not bear it. Then Oliver had come. She had fought her way back to sanity and confidence. And the phantom had gone again. How sensible and quiet he had been, she was beginning to tell herself now, as the quiet influence of this huge throng in this glorious place of worship possessed her once more. How reasonable in his explanation that man was even now only convalescent and therefore liable to relapse. She had told herself that again and again during the night, but it had been different when he had said so. His personality had once more prevailed, and the name of Felsenberg had finished the work. If he were but here, she sighed, but she knew he was far away. It was not until a quarter to eleven that she understood that the crowds outside were clamoring for him too, and that knowledge reassured her yet further. They knew then, these wild tigers, where their redemption lay. They understood what was their ideal, even if they had not attained to it. Ah, if he were but here, there would be no more question. The sullen waves would sink beneath his call of peace. The hazy clouds lift, the rumble die to silence. But he was away, away on some strange business. Well, he knew his work. He would surely come soon again to his children who needed him so terribly. She had the good fortune to be alone in a crowd. Her neighbor, a grizzled old man with his daughters beyond, was her only neighbor and a stranger. At her left rose up the red-covered barricade over which she could see the sanctuary and the curtain. And her seat in the tribune, raised some eight feet above the floor, removed her from any possibility of conversation. She was thankful for that. She did not want to talk. She wanted only to control her faculties in silence, to reassert her faith, to look out over this enormous throng gathered to pay homage to the great spirit whom they had betrayed, to renew her own courage and faithfulness. She wondered what the preacher would say, whether there would be any note of penitence. Maternity was his subject, that benign aspect of universal life, tenderness, love, quiet, receptive, protective passion, the spirit that soothes rather than inspires, that busies itself with peaceful tasks, that kindles the lights and fires of home, that gives sleep, food, and welcome. The bell stopped, and in the instant before the music began she heard, clear above the murmur within, the roar of the crowds outside, who still demanded their God. Then with a crash the huge organ awoke, pierced by the cry of the trumpets and the maddening throb of drums. There was no delicate prelude here, no slow stirring of life rising through labyrinths of mystery to the climax of sight. Here rather was full-orbed day, the high noon of knowledge and power, the dayspring from on high dawning in mid-heaven. Her heart quickened to meet it and her reviving confidence, still convalescent, stirred and smiled as the tremendous chords blared overhead, telling of triumph full-armed. God was man, then, after all, a God who last night had faltered for an hour, but who rose again on the morning of a new year, scattering mists, dominant over his own passion, all compelling and all beloved. God was man, and Felsenberg his incarnation. Yes, she must believe that. She did believe that. Then she saw how already the long procession was winding up beneath the screen, and by imperceptible art the light grew yet more acutely beautiful. They were coming, then, those ministers of the pure worship, grave men who knew in what they believed, and who, even if they did not at this moment thrill with feeling, 
for she knew that in this respect her husband for one did not, yet believed the principles of this worship and recognized their need of expression for the majority of mankind, coming slowly up in fours and pairs and units, led by robed vergers rippling over the steps and emerging again into the colored sunlight in all their bravery of Masonic apron, badge, and jewel. Surely here was reassurance enough. The sanctuary now held a figure or two. Anxious-faced Mr. Francis, in his robes of office, came gravely down the steps and stood awaiting the procession, directing with almost imperceptible motions his satellites, who hovered about the aisles ready to point this way and that to the advancing stream. And the westernmost seats were already beginning to fill, when on a sudden she recognized that something had happened. Just now the roaring of the mob outside had provided a kind of underbase to the music within, imperceptible except to subconsciousness, but clearly discernible in its absence, and this absence was now a fact. At first she thought that the signal of beginning worship had hushed them, and then, with an indescribable thrill, she remembered that in all her knowledge only one thing had ever availed to quiet a turbulent crowd. Yet she was not sure. It might be an illusion. Even now the mob might be roaring still, and she only deaf to it. But again, with an ecstasy that was very near to agony, she perceived that the murmur of voices even within the building had ceased, and that some great wave of emotion was stirring the sheaths and slopes of faces before her as a wind stirs wheat. A moment later and she was on her feet, gripping the rail, with her heart like an overdriven engine beating pulses of blood, furious and insistent, through every vein. For with a great rushing surge that sounded like a sigh, heard even above the triumphant tumult overhead, the whole enormous assemblage had risen to its feet. Confusion seemed to break out in the orderly procession. She saw Mr. Francis run forward quickly, gesticulating like a conductor, and at his signal the long line swayed forward, split, recoiled, and again slid swiftly forward, breaking as it did so into twenty streams that poured along the seats and filled them in a moment. Men ran and pushed, aprons flapped, hands beckoned, all without coherent words. There was a knocking of feet, the crash of an overturned chair, and then, as if a god had lifted his hand for quiet, the music ceased abruptly, sending a wild echo that swooned and died in a moment. A great sigh filled its place, and, in the colored sunshine that lay along the immense length of the gangway that ran open now from west to east, Far down in the distant nave, a single figure was seen advancing. What Mabel saw and heard and felt from eleven o'clock to half an hour after noon on that first morning of the new year, she could never adequately remember. For the time, she lost the continuous consciousness of self, the power of reflection, for she was still weak from her struggle. There was no longer in her the process by which events are stored, labeled, and recorded. She was no more than a being who observed, as it were, in one long act, across which considerations played at uncertain intervals. Eyes and ears seemed her sole functions, communicating direct with the burning heart. She did not even know at what point her senses told her that this was Felsenberg. She seemed to have known it even before he entered, and she watched him as in complete silence he came deliberately up the red carpet, superbly alone, rising a step or two at the entrance of the choir, passing on and up before her. He was in his English judicial dress of scarlet and black, but she scarcely noticed it. For her, too, no one else existed but he. This vast assemblage was gone, poised and transfigured in one vibrating atmosphere of an immense human emotion. There was no one anywhere but Julian Felsenberg. Peace and light burned like a glory about him. For an instant after passing, he disappeared beyond the speaker's tribune, and the instant after reappeared once more, coming up the steps. He reached his place. She could see his profile beneath her, and slightly to the left, pure and keen as the blade of a knife beneath his white hair. He lifted one white-furred sleeve, made a single motion, and with a surge and a rumble, the ten thousand were seated. 
He motioned again, and with a roar they were on their feet. Again there was a silence. He stood now, perfectly still, his hands laid together on the rail, and his face looking steadily before him. It seemed as if he who had drawn all eyes and stilled all sounds were waiting until his domination were complete, and there was but one will, one desire, and that beneath his hand. Then he began to speak. In this again, as Mabel perceived afterwards, there was no precise or verbal record within her of what he had said. There was no conscious process by which she received, tested, or approved what she heard. The nearest image under which she could afterwards describe her emotions to herself was that when he spoke, it was she who was speaking. Her own thoughts, her predispositions, her griefs, her disappointment, her passion, her hopes, all these interior acts of the soul known scarcely even to herself, down even, it seemed, to the minutest whirls and eddies of thought, were, by this man, lifted up, cleansed, kindled, satisfied, and proclaimed. For the first time in her life she became perfectly aware of what human nature meant, for it was her own heart that passed out upon the air, borne on that immense voice. Again, as once before for a few moments in Paul's house, it seemed that creation, groaning so long, had spoken articulate words at last, had come to growth and coherent thought and perfect speech. Yet then he had spoken to men, now it was man himself speaking. It was not one man who spoke there, it was man, man conscious of his origin, his destiny, and his pilgrimage between, man sane again after a night of madness, knowing his strength, declaring his law, lamenting in a voice as eloquent as stringed instruments his own failure to correspond. It was a soliloquy rather than an oration. Rome had fallen, English and Italian streets had run with blood, smoke and flame had gone up to heaven, because man had for an instant sunk back to the tiger. Yet it was done, cried the great voice, and there was no repentance. It was done, and ages hence man must still do penance and flush scarlet with shame to remember that once he turned his back on the risen light. There was no appeal to the lurid, no picture of the tumbling palaces, the running figures, the coughing explosions, the shaking of the earth and the dying of the doomed. It was rather with those hot hearts shouting in the English and German streets, or aloft in the winter air of Italy, the ugly passions that warred there, as the volors rocked at their stations, generating and fulfilling revenge, paying back plot with plot, and violence with violence. For there, cried the voice, was man as he had been, fallen in an instant to the cruel old ages before he had learnt what he was and why. There was no repentance, said the voice again, but there was something better. And as the hard, stinging tones melted, the girl's dry eyes of shame filled in an instant with tears. There was something better, the knowledge of what crimes man was yet capable of, and the will to use that knowledge. Rome was gone, and it was a lamentable shame. Rome was gone, and the air was the sweeter for it. And then, in an instant, like the soar of a bird, he was up and away, away from the horrid gulf where he had looked just now, from the fragments of charred bodies and tumbled houses and all the signs of man's disgrace, to the pure air and sunlight to which man must once more set his face. Yet he bore with him in that wonderful flight the dew of tears and the aroma of earth. He had not spared words with which to lash and whip the naked human heart, and he did not spare words to lift up the bleeding, shrinking thing and comfort it with the divine vision of love. Historically speaking, it was about forty minutes before he turned to the shrouded image behind the altar. O oh, maternity, he cried, mother of us all. And then, to those who heard him, the supreme miracle took place. For it seemed now in an instant that it was no longer man who spoke, but one who stood upon the stage of the superhuman. The curtain ripped back, as one who stood by it tore, panting at the strings, 
And there, it seemed, face to face stood the mother above the altar, huge, white, and protective, and the child, one passionate incarnation of love, crying to her from the tribune, O oh, mother of us all and mother of me. So he praised her to her face. That sublime principle of life declared her glories and her strength, her immaculate motherhood, her seven swords of anguish driven through her heart by the passion and the follies of her son. He promised her great things, the recognition of her countless children, the love and service of the unborn, the welcome of those yet quickening within the womb. He named her the wisdom of the Most High, that sweetly orders all things, the gate of heaven, house of ivory, comforter of the afflicted, queen of the world. And to the delirious eyes of those who looked on her, it seemed that the grave face smiled to hear him. A great panting as of some monstrous life began to fill the air as the mob swayed behind him and the torrential voice poured on. Waves of emotion swept up and down. There were cries and sobs, the yelping of a man beside himself at last from somewhere along the crowded seats, the crash of a bench, and another and another, and the gangways were full, for he no longer held them passive to listen. He was rousing them to some supreme act. The tide crawled nearer, and the faces stared no longer at the sun but the mother. The girl in the gallery tore at the heavy railing and sank down sobbing upon her knees. And above all the voice peeled on, and the thin hands blanched to whiteness strained from the wide and sumptuous sleeves as if to reach across the sanctuary itself. It was a new tale he was telling now, and all to her glory. He was from the east, now they knew, come from some triumph. He had been hailed as king, adored as divine, as was meet and right. He, the humble superman's son of a human mother, who bore not a sword but peace, not a cross but a crown. So it seemed he was saying. Yet no man there knew whether he said it or not, whether the voice proclaimed it or their hearts asserted it. He was on the steps of the sanctuary now, still with outstretched hands and pouring words, and the mob rolled after him to the rumble of ten thousand feet and the sighing of ten thousand hearts. He was at the altar. He was upon it. Again in one last cry as the crowd broke against the steps beneath, he hailed her queen and mother. The end came in a moment, swift and inevitable. And for an instant, before the girl in the gallery sank down, blind with tears, she saw the tiny figure poised there at the knees of the huge image, beneath the expectant hands, silent and transfigured in the blaze of light. The mother, it seemed, had found her son at last. For an instant she saw it, the soaring columns, the gilding and the colors, the swaying heads, the tossing hands. It was a sea that heaved before her. Lights went up and down, the rose window whirled overhead, presences filled the air. Heaven flashed away, and the earth shook in ecstasy. Then in the heavenly light, to the crash of drums, above the screaming of the women and the battering of feet, in one thunder peal of worship, ten thousand voices hailed him, Lord and God. Book Three The Victory Chapter 1 The little room where the new pope sat reading was a model of simplicity. Its walls were whitewashed, its roof unpolished rafters, and its floor beaten mud. A square table stood in the center with a chair beside it. A cold brazier, laid for lighting, stood in the wide hearth. A bookshelf against the wall held a dozen volumes. There were three doors, one leading to the private oratory, one to the anteroom, and the third to the little paved court. The south windows were shuttered, but through the ill-fitting hinges streamed knife blades of fiery light from the hot eastern day outside. 
It was the time of the midday siesta, and except for the brisk scything of the cicada from the hill slope behind the house, all was in deep silence. The Pope, who had dined an hour before, had hardly shifted his attitude in all that time, so intent was he upon his reading. For the while, all was put away, his own memory of those last three months, the bitter anxiety, the intolerable load of responsibility. The book he held was a cheap reprint of the famous biography of Julian Felsenberg issued a month before, and he was now drawing to an end. It was a terse, well-written book, composed by an unknown hand, and some even suspected it to be the disguised work of Felsenberg himself. More, however, considered that it was written at least with Felsenberg's consent by one of that small body of intimates whom he had admitted to his society, that body which under him now conducted the affairs of West and East. From certain indications in the book, it had been argued that its actual writer was a Western. The main body of the work dealt with his life, or rather with those two or three years known to the world, from his rapid rise in American politics and his mediation in the East down to the event of five months ago, when in swift succession he had been hailed Messiah in Damascus, had been formally adored in London, and finally elected by an extraordinary majority to the tribunicate of the two Americas. The Pope had read rapidly through these objective facts, for he knew them well enough already, and was now studying with close attention the summary of his character, or rather, as the author rather sententiously explained, the summary of his self-manifestation to the world. He read the description of his two main characteristics, his grasp upon words and facts. Words, the daughters of earth, were wedded in this man to facts, the sons of heaven, and Superman was their offspring. His minor characteristics, too, were noticed, his appetite for literature, his astonishing memory, his linguistic powers. He possessed, it appeared, both the telescopic and the microscopic eye. He discerned worldwide tendencies and movements on the one hand. He had a passionate capacity for detail on the other. Various anecdotes illustrated these remarks, and a number of terse aphorisms of his were recorded. No man forgives, he said, he only understands. It needs supreme faith to renounce a transcendent God. A man who believes in himself is almost capable of believing in his neighbor. Here was a sentence that to the Pope's mind was significant of that sublime egotism that is alone capable of confronting the Christian spirit. And again, to forgive a wrong is to condone a crime. And the strong man is accessible to no one, but all are accessible to him. There was a certain pompousness in this array of remarks, but it lay, as the Pope saw very well, not in the speaker, but in the scribe. To him who had seen the speaker, it was plain how they had been uttered, with no pontifical solemnity, but whirled out in a fiery stream of eloquence, or spoken with that strangely moving simplicity that had constituted his first assault on London. It was possible to hate Felsenberg and to fear him, but never to be amused at him. But plainly the supreme pleasure of the writer was to trace the analogy between his hero and nature. In both there was the same apparent contradictoriness, the combination of utter tenderness and utter ruthlessness. The power that heals wounds also inflicts them, that clothes the dung heap with sweet growths and grasses, breaks too into fire and earthquake, that causes the partridge to die for her young, also makes the shrike with his living larder. So too with Felsenberg. He who had wept over the fall of Rome, a month later had spoken of extermination as an instrument that even now might be judicially used in the service of humanity. Only it must be used with deliberation, not with passion. The utterance had aroused extraordinary interest, since it seemed so paradoxical from one who preached peace and toleration, and argument had broken out all over the world. But beyond enforcing the dispersal of the Irish Catholics and the execution of a few individuals, so far that utterance had not been acted upon. Yet the world seemed as a whole to have accepted it, and even now to be waiting for its fulfillment. 
As the biographer had pointed out, the world enclosed in physical nature should welcome one who followed its precepts, one who was indeed the first to introduce deliberately and confessedly into human affairs such laws as those of the survival of the fittest and the immorality of forgiveness. If there was mystery in the one, there was mystery in the other, and both must be accepted if man was to develop. And the secret of this, it seemed, lay in his personality. To see him was to believe him, or rather to accept him as inevitably true. We do not explain nature or escape from it by sentimental regrets. The hare cries like a child, the wounded stag weeps great tears, the robin kills his parents. Life exists only on condition of death, and these things happen however we may weave theories that explain nothing. Life must be accepted on those terms. We cannot be wrong if we follow nature. Rather, to accept them is to find peace. Our great mother only reveals her secrets to those who take her as she is. So, too, with Felsenberg. It is not for us to discriminate. His personality is of a kind that does not admit it. He is complete and sufficing for those who trust him and are willing to suffer, a hostile and hateful enigma to those who are not. We must prepare ourselves for the logical outcome of this doctrine. Sentimentality must not be permitted to dominate reason. Finally, then, the writer showed how to this man belonged properly all those titles hitherto lavished upon imagined supreme beings. It was in preparation for him that these types came into the realms of thought and influenced men's lives. He was the creator, for it was reserved for him to bring into being the perfect life of union to which all the world had hitherto groaned in vain. It was in his own image and likeness that he had made man. Yet he was the redeemer, too, for that likeness had in one sense always underlain the tumult of mistake and conflict. He had brought man out of darkness and the shadow of death, guiding their feet into the way of peace. He was the Savior for the same reason, the Son of Man, for He alone was perfectly human. He was the Absolute, for He was the content of ideals, the Eternal, for He had lain always in nature's potentiality and secured by His being the continuity of that order, the Infinite, for all finite things fell short of Him who was more than their sum. He was Alpha, then, and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He was Dominus et Deus Noster, as Domitian had been, the Pope reflected. He was as simple and as complex as life itself, simple in its essence, complex in its activities. And last of all, the supreme proof of his mission lay in the immortal nature of his message. There was no more to be added to what he had brought to light, for in him all diverging lines at last found their origin and their end. As to whether or no he would prove to be personally immortal, this was a wholly irrelevant thought. It would be indeed fitting if through his means the vital principle should disclose its last secret, but no more than fitting. Already his spirit was in the world. The individual was no more separate from his fellows, death no more than a wrinkle that came and went across the inviolable sea. For man had learned at last that the race was all and self was nothing. The cell had discovered the unity of the body. Even, the greatest thinkers declared, the consciousness of the individual had yielded the title of personality to the corporate mass of man, and the restlessness of the unit had sunk into the peace of a common humanity. For nothing but this could explain the cessation of party strife and national competition. And this, above all, had been the work of Felsenberg. Behold, I am with you always, quoted the writer in a passionate peroration, even now in the consummation of the world, and the comforter is come unto you. I am the door, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life and the water of life. My name is Wonderful, the Prince of Peace, the Father Everlasting. It is I who am the desire of all nations, the fairest among the children of men, and of my kingdom there shall be no end. The Pope laid down the book and leaned back, closing his eyes. And as for himself, what had he to say to all this? 
a transcendent God who hid himself, a divine Savior who delayed to come, a comforter heard no longer in wind nor seen in fire. There in the next room was a little wooden altar, and above it an iron box, and within that box a silver cup, and within that cup something. Outside the house, a hundred yards away, lay the domes and plaster roofs of a little village called Nazareth. Carmel was on the right, a mile or two away, Tabor on the left, the plain of Esdralon in front, and behind Cana and Galilee, and the quiet lake, and Hermon, and far away to the south lay Jerusalem. It was to this tiny strip of holy land that the Pope had come, the land where a faith had sprouted two thousand years ago, and where, unless God spoke in fire from heaven, it would presently be cut down as a cumberer of the ground. It was here on this material earth that one had walked whom all men had thought to have been he who would redeem Israel. In this village that he had fetched water and made boxes and chairs, on that long lake that his feet had walked, on that high hill that he had flamed in glory, on that smooth low mountain to the north that he had declared that the meek were blessed and should inherit the earth, that peacemakers were the children of God, that they who hungered and thirsted should be satisfied. And now it was come to this. Christianity had smoldered away from Europe like a sunset on darkening peaks. Eternal Rome was a heap of ruins. In east and west alike a man had been set upon the throne of God, had been acclaimed as divine. The world had leaped forward. Social science was supreme. Men had learned consistency. They had learned, too, the social lessons of Christianity apart from a divine teacher, or rather, they said, in spite of him. There were left perhaps three millions, perhaps five, at the utmost ten millions, it was impossible to know, throughout the entire inhabited globe who still worshipped Jesus Christ as God. And the vicar of Christ sat in a whitewashed room in Nazareth, dressed as simply as his master, waiting for the end. He had done what he could. There had been a week five months ago when it had been doubtful whether anything at all could be done. There were left three cardinals alive, himself, Steinman, and the patriarch of Jerusalem. The rest lay mangled somewhere in the ruins of Rome. There was no precedent to follow, so the two Europeans had made their way out to the east and to the one town in it where quiet still reigned. With the disappearance of Greek Christianity, there had also vanished the last remnants of internecine war in Christendom, and by a kind of tacit consent of the world, Christians were allowed a moderate liberty in Palestine. Russia, which now held the country as a dependency, had sufficient sentiment left to leave it alone. It was true that the holy places had been desecrated and remained now only as spots of antiquarian interest. The altars were gone, but the sites were yet marked, and, although Mass could no longer be said there, it was understood that private oratories were not forbidden. It was in this state that the two European cardinals had found the holy city. It was not thought wise to wear insignia of any description in public, and it was practically certain even now that the civilized world was unaware of their existence. For within three days of their arrival, the old patriarch had died, yet not before Percy Franklin, surely under the strangest circumstances since those of the first century, had been elected to the supreme pontificate. It had all been done in a few minutes by the dying man's bedside. The two old men had insisted. The German had even recurred once more to the strange resemblance between Percy and Julian Felsenberg, and had murmured his old half-heard remarks about the antithesis and the finger of God. And Percy, marveling at his superstition, had accepted, and the election was recorded. He had taken the name of Sylvester, the last saint in the year, and was the third of that title. He had then retired to Nazareth with his chaplain. Steinman had gone back to Germany and been hanged in a riot within a fortnight of his arrival. The next matter was the creation of new cardinals, and to twenty persons, with infinite precautions, briefs had been conveyed. Of these, nine had declined. Three more had been approached, of whom only one had accepted. 
There were therefore at this moment twelve persons in the world who constituted the sacred college, two Englishmen, of whom Corcoran was one, two Americans, a Frenchman, a German, an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, a Chinaman, a Greek, and a Russian. To these were entrusted vast districts over which their control was supreme, subject only to the Holy Father himself. As regarded the Pope's own life, very little need be said. It resembled, he thought, in its outward circumstances, that of such a man as Leo the Great, without his worldly importance or pomp. Theoretically, the Christian world was under his dominion. Practically, Christian affairs were administered by local authorities. It was impossible for a hundred reasons for him to do what he wished with regard to the exchange of communications. An elaborate cipher had been designed, and a private telegraphic station organized on his roof communicating with another in Damascus, where Cardinal Corcoran had fixed his residence. And from that center, messages occasionally were dispatched to ecclesiastical authorities elsewhere, but for the most part there was little to be done. The Pope, however, had the satisfaction of knowing that, with incredible difficulty, a little progress had been made towards the reorganization of the hierarchy in all countries. Bishops were being consecrated freely. There were not less than two thousand of them, all told, and of priests an unknown number. The Order of Christ Crucified was doing excellent work, and the tales of not less than four hundred martyrdoms had reached Nazareth during the last two months, accomplished mostly at the hands of the mobs. In other respects also, as well as in the primary object of the Order's existence, namely the affording of an opportunity to all who loved God to dedicate themselves to Him more perfectly, the new religious were doing good work. The more perilous tasks, the work of communication between prelates, missions to persons of suspected integrity, all the business, in fact, which was carried on now at the vital risk of the agent, were entrusted solely to the members of the order. Stringent instructions had been issued from Nazareth that no bishop was to expose himself unnecessarily. Each was to regard himself as the heart of his diocese, to be protected at all costs save that of Christian honor, and in consequence each had surrounded himself with a group of the new religious, men and women, who with extraordinary and generous obedience undertook such dangerous tasks as they were capable of performing. It was plain enough by now that had it not been for the order, the church would have been little better than paralyzed under these new conditions. Extraordinary faculties were being issued in all directions. Every priest who belonged to the order received universal jurisdiction subject to his bishop, if any, of the diocese in which he might be. Mass might be said on any day of the year of the five wounds, or the resurrection, or Our Lady. And all had the privilege of the portable altar, now permitted to be wood. Further ritual requirements were relaxed. Mass might be said with any decent vessels of any material capable of destruction, such as glass or china. Bread of any description might be used, and no vestments were obligatory except the thin thread that now represented the stole. Lights were non-essential. None need wear the clerical habit, and rosary even without beads was always permissible instead of the office. In this manner, priests were rendered capable of giving the sacraments and offering the holy sacrifice at the least possible risk to themselves and these relaxations had already proved of enormous benefit in the European prisons where, by this time, many thousands of Catholics were undergoing the penalty of refusing public worship. The Pope's private life was as simple as his room. He had one Syrian priest for his chaplain and two Syrian servants. He said his Mass each morning, himself wearing vestments and his white habit beneath, and heard a Mass after. He then took his coffee, after changing into the tunic and burnas of the country, and spent the morning over business. He dined at noon, slept, and rode out, for the country, by reason of its indeterminate position, was still in the simplicity of a hundred years ago. He returned at dusk, supped, and worked again till late into the night. That was all. His chaplain sent what messages were necessary to Damascus. His servants, themselves ignorant of his dignity, dealt with the secular world so far as was required, 
and the utmost that seemed to be known to his few neighbors was that there lived in the late sheik's little house on the hill an eccentric European with a telegraph office. His servants, themselves devout Catholics, knew him for a bishop, but no more than that. They were told only that there was yet a pope alive, and with that and the sacraments were content. To sum up, therefore, the Catholic world knew that their pope lived under the name of Sylvester, and thirteen persons of the entire human race knew that Franklin had been his name, and that the throne of Peter rested for the time in Nazareth. It was, as a Frenchman had said just a hundred years ago, Catholicism survived, but no more. And as for his inner life, what can be said of that? He lay now back in his wooden chair, thinking, with closed eyes. He could not have described it consistently even to himself, for indeed he scarcely knew it. He acted rather than indulged in reflex thought. But the center of his position was simple faith. The Catholic religion, he knew well enough, gave the only adequate explanation of the universe. It did not unlock all mysteries, but it unlocked more than any other key known to man. He knew, too, perfectly well, that it was the only system of thought that satisfied man as a whole and accounted for him in his essential nature. Further, he saw well enough that the failure of Christianity to unite all men one to another rested not upon its feebleness, but its strength. Its lines met in eternity, not in time. Besides, he happened to believe it. But to this foreground there were other moods whose shifting was out of his control. In his exalté moods, which came upon him like a breeze from paradise, the background was bright with hope and drama. He saw himself and his companions as Peter and the apostles must have regarded themselves, as they proclaimed through the world, in temples, slums, marketplaces, and private houses, the faith that was to shake and transform the world. They had handled the Lord of life, seen the empty sepulchre, grasped the pierced hands of him who was their brother and their God. It was radiantly true, though not a man believed it. The huge superincumbent weight of incredulity could not disturb a fact that was as the sun in heaven. Moreover, the very desperateness of the cause was their inspiration. There was no temptation to lean upon the arm of flesh, for there was none that fought for them but God. Their nakedness was their armor, their slow tongues their persuasiveness. Their weakness demanded God's strength and found it. Yet there was this difference, and it was a significant one. For Peter, the spiritual world had an interpretation and a guarantee in the outward events he had witnessed. He had handled the risen Christ. The external corroborated the internal. But for Sylvester it was not so. For him it was necessary so to grasp spiritual truths in the supernatural sphere that the external events of the Incarnation were proved by rather than proved the certitude of his spiritual apprehension. Certainly, historically speaking, Christianity was true, proved by its records, yet to see that needed illumination. He apprehended the power of the resurrection, therefore Christ was risen. Therefore in heavier moods it was different with him. There were periods, lasting sometimes for days together, clouding him when he awoke, stifling him as he tried to sleep, dulling the very savor of the sacrament and the thrill of the precious blood, times in which the darkness was so intolerable that even the solid objects of faith attenuated themselves to shadow, when half his nature was blind not only to Christ, but to God himself and the reality of his own existence, when his own awful dignity seemed as the insignia of a fool. And was it conceivable, his earthly mind demanded, that he and his college of twelve and his few thousands should be right, and the entire consensus of the civilized world wrong? It was not that the world had not heard the message of the gospel. It had heard little else for two thousand years, and now pronounced it false. False in its external credentials, and false, therefore, in its spiritual claims. It was a lost cause for which he suffered. He was not the last of an august line. He was the smoking wick of a candle of folly. He was the reductio ad absurdum of a ludicrous syllogism based on impossible premises. He was not worth killing, he and his company of the insane. 
They were no more than the crowned dunces of the world's school. Sanity sat on the solid benches of materialism. And this heaviness waxed so dark sometimes that he almost persuaded himself that his faith was gone. The clamors of mind so loud that the whisper of the heart was unheard. The desires for earthly peace so fierce that supernatural ambitions were silenced. So dense was the gloom that, hoping against hope, believing against knowledge, and loving against truth, he cried as one other had cried on another day like this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But that, at least, he never failed to cry. One thing alone gave him power to go on, so far at least as his consciousness was concerned, and that was his meditation. He had traveled far in the mystical life since his agonies of effort. Now he used no deliberate descents into the spiritual world. He threw, as it were, his hands over his head and dropped into spacelessness. Consciousness would draw him up as a cork to the surface, but he would do no more than repeat his action, until by that cessation of activity, which is the supreme energy, he floated in the twilight realm of transcendence. And there God would deal with him, now by an articulate sentence, now by a sort of pain, now by an air like the vivifying breath of the sea. Sometimes after communion he would treat him so, sometimes as he fell asleep, sometimes in the whirl of work. Yet his consciousness did not seem to retain for long such experiences. Five minutes later, it might be, he would be wrestling once more with the all-but-sensible phantoms of the mind and the heart. There he lay, then, in the chair, revolving the intolerable blasphemies that he had read. His white hair was thin upon his brown temples. His hands were as the hands of a spirit, and his young face lined and patched with sorrow. His bare feet protruded from beneath his stained tunic, and his old brown burnus laid on the floor beside him. It was an hour before he moved, and the sun had already lost half its fierceness when the steps of the horses sounded in the paved court outside. Then he sat up, slipped his feet into their shoes, and lifted the burnus from the floor as the door opened and the lean sunburnt priest came through. The horses, holiness, said the man. The Pope spoke not one word that afternoon until the two came toward sunset up the bridle path that leads between Tabor and Nazareth. They had taken their usual round through Cana, mounting a hillock from which the long mirror of Genesareth could be seen, and passing on, always bearing to the right, under the shadow of Tabor, until once more Esdralon spread itself like a grey-green carpet, a vast circle, twenty miles across, sprinkled sparsely with groups of huts, white walls, and roofs, with Nain visible on the other side, Carmel heaving its long form far off on the right, and Nazareth nestling a mile or two away on the plateau on which they had halted. It was a sight of extraordinary peace, and seemed an extract from some old picture book designed centuries ago. Here was no crowd of roofs, no pressure of hot humanity, no terrible evidences of civilization and manufactory and strenuous fruitless effort. A few tired Jews had come back to this quiet little land, as old people may return to their native place, with no hope of renewing their youth or refining their ideals, but with a kind of sentimentality that prevails so often over more logical motives, and a few more barrack-like houses had been added here and there to the obscure villages in sight but it was very much as it had been a hundred years ago. The plain was half-shadowed by Carmel, and half in dusty golden light. Overhead, the clear eastern sky was flushed with rose, as it had flushed for Abraham, Jacob, and the son of David. There was no little cloud here, as a man's hand over the sea, charged with both promise and terror, no sound of chariot wheels from earth or heaven, no vision of heavenly horses such as a man had seen thirty centuries ago in this very sky. Here was the old earth and the old heaven, unchanged and unchangeable. The patient, returning spring had starred the thin soil with flowers of Bethlehem, and those glorious lilies to which Solomon's scarlet garments might not be compared. 
There was no whisper from the throne as when Gabriel had once stooped through this very air to hail her who was blessed among women. No breath of promise or hope beyond that which God sends through every movement of his created robe of life. As the two halted and the horses looked out with steady, inquisitive eyes at the immensity of light and air beneath them, a soft hooting cry broke out, and a shepherd passed below along the hillside a hundred yards away, trailing his long shadow behind him, and to the mellow tinkle of bells his flock came after, a troop of obedient sheep and willful goats, cropping and following and cropping again as they went on to the fold, called by name in that sad minor voice of him who knew each and led instead of driving. The soft clanking grew fainter, the shadow of the shepherd shot once to their very feet as he topped the rise, and vanished again as he stepped down once more, and the call grew fainter yet and ceased. The Pope lifted his hand to his eyes for an instant, then smoothed it down his face. He nodded across to a dim patch of white walls glimmering through the violet haze of the falling twilight. That place, Father, he said. What is its name? The Syrian priest looked across, back once more at the Pope, and across again. That among the palms, Holiness? Yes. That is Megiddo, he said. Some call it Armageddon. <laughs>